Good morning, everybody. Um, right? So, uh, we've been in our sermon series through the book of James, right? And we've been kind of slowly going through the different portions of it. And if you remember way back a couple weeks ago, Cameron stood up here and he started the very first sermon and he had these giant pills, right? right? And he was like, the book of James is filled with giant truth pills, giant things that like we need to like get through our head. And he was like, these, these are big pill warnings, right? Warning, big truth alert. Warning, a hard pill to swallow. And, and one of the things is that James, throughout the book, right, he's over and over again, he's advocating for this, what I kind of call an integrity of faith. He wants the internal faith and belief and trust in Jesus to result in a changed way of living. So he wants, he wants the two to match up. And so that's kind of what he's, kind of what he's, you know, he, he doesn't want just Jesus to be something we put on Facebook or on our resume. Uh, I'm a little hot in the mains. You could pull me back just a little bit. Um, but um, he wants it to be something that's not just on our resume, not just something we say we are, but something uh, that Dick, that that changes who we are, changes how we live our lives. And I was thinking about this, and I was like, what, like, what, you know, what, what do we all encounter way too often um, that, uh, that, that is misleading? Well, clickbait, right? If you've ever been on the internet and you've seen a news article and you're like, that just, oh, I know that this is probably just going to lead to nowhere and it's going to be very disappointing, but I just got to click on this link. I got to click on this video title. Um, I got to find out what's really going on. I had some, I've got some images of some uh, clickbait I found that I thought was um, quite interesting. Go ahead and put that first one up for me, if you can. If not, I'll just have to make stuff up. Improv is dangerous when you're preaching, just so you all know. Uh, but like, um, you know, I think there was a recent clickbait article. I think one of the ones that I wanted to have up there is, uh, says, Na- oh, here we go. NASA responds to rumors that they found alien life. Now, if you were to click on that link, you'd find out they haven't found any alien life. <laughs> right? Right? Just so you know. Right? Uh, what, what's the next one? All right, guy tried to refrigerate his drink with an aircon, and this happened. It got cold, guys. Like, he stuck it in front of his air. It got cold. Like, wow, that was really worth 10 minutes. All right, next one. All right, was Amelia Earhart eaten by coconut crabs? No. <laughs> like, like, I mean, how many of these articles are going to result in the negative? Um, all right, next one. Um, should you start drinking beta so- baking soda for weight loss? No, don't do that. Why in the world would you want to do that? <laughs> don't do that. All right, Lax, I think this is the next one. All right, this outrageous truth about green gummy bears will absolutely destroy your world. They're strawberry flavored. I don't know, I found that out last night and I just haven't been able to pull myself together. <laughs> right? 
Like, like th- this is clickbait, right? Like, we've all encountered this, like the video that promises to wow us. And we're like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be so interesting. And then you're just like, oh, that was massively disappointing. Um, so not what was promised. Definitely misleading. Um, I still love the alien one. Like we, would, like, we would need to know on a news article. You think everybody would talk about aliens. Anyways, <laughs> so... But, but James is advocating for us to integrate our faith into our life so that we're not just clickbait Christians. That we don't have this big, really interesting, promising headline on our lives that says, I'm a follower of Jesus, but when you actually click and you follow through, uh, you find, oh, maybe not. Like, this doesn't, this doesn't seem to line up. The way that you treat people doesn't match up with the way Jesus treated people. The way that you speak doesn't match up with the way that Jesus spoke to people. The way that you view social class and wealth and what you're striving after doesn't match up with the teachings of Jesus. And so he wants this integrity of faith. And so... That is what Jesus wants to answer, wants, wants to, or, or what James is trying, the brother of Jesus, is trying to get us to think about as he's going through the book and through this letter. How can I line up the different aspects of my life to match up with who I believe in, who I follow? And so today, uh, like Jess said, we're going to be talking about conflict, right? Everyone's favorite thing. Um, is, is anybody who, who's out there who is a personality uh, junkie, right? Do you take all the personality tests? I mean, I've taken them all, guys. Um, I'm a huge personality test guy. Um, but if you're familiar with the Enneagram one, the one with like the nine personalities, I'm the one at the top. I'm the nine that's called like the peacemaker. Um, and one of the unhealthy things that a peacemaker does is they just run from anything that's called conflict, Right? Like, I am a master at, oh, this feels awkward. Let's quickly change the topic, quickly change the channel. Hey, did you guys see the weather? Like, um, like that is me to a T. And so I will, I just like, ooh, conflict is icky. I don't want to mess with it. Right? That's my tendency. And that is just as an unhelpful tendency as it is for somebody who just is always engaging in conflict or making conflict. Those are both unhealthy extremes. We have to have a way to engage in conflict, and we need to do it Christ-like, and we need to be Christ-formed as we're doing it. Because conflict is all around us, right? I mean, that's half of social media, right? Social media is cat videos and people arguing in the comments about it, right? And that's, that, that's, that's the whole internet, right? It's just conflict. And so we need to have a way to like actually be formed and shaped by this. So the question that we're answering today, the question we want to dig through, is how does our faith in Jesus impact conflict? How does the fact that I'm a Christ follower, just like our mission says that we want to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, serve like Jesus, how do I have conflict like Jesus? So in order to answer that question, I want to dig into our text for today. We're going to be in James chapter 4, looking at verses uh, 1 through 12. So we'll have that up here on the screen. Um, but uh, you can follow along in your Bible or in your app. We're in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. 
and I bookmarked the wrong book of the Bible. I do not know how to preach from that passage. <laughs> this looks more familiar. All right. James 4, verses 1 through 12. says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, and so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But, He gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge. The one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? I don't know about you, but I spotted some big pills in that passage, right? Some big truths that are uncomfortable, right? Things that maybe, like, as I was reading that, I was like, hmm, let's not talk too much about that, right? Like, hmm, friendship with the world, what does that mean, right? I want to set maybe um, a good ground rule. Maybe can we all agree on something, right? Um that today when we're kind of looking at this passage, as we're considering conflict, as we're considering our hearts, I think let's, uh, let's, let's make a point to think about ourselves and not others, right? I think um, we are just, we are massively by nature uh, self-concerned people, right? We spend 90%, 95% of our energy each and every single day thinking about ourselves, right? And so if you're sitting here today and you're like, you know, so-and-so really needs to hear this. I don't know that that's coming out of the goodness of your heart, (laughs) right? Like chances are, right, you you need to stop and need to say, okay, that's probably a signal that like I also do need to hear this myself, right? It's a sign for myself to stop and do a heart check. So I would encourage you to set the ground rule today. Let's let the Spirit convict ourselves and not the person next to us. Um, so what is like the main point? This is 12 verses. It's kind of all over the place. 
But the main thing I want to get across, the one thing that I'm kind of emphasizing today is this point, is that when our hearts don't serve God, we wage wars with our actions and our words. When our hearts are not submitted, they're not in a place in which they're serving God and his purpose and his will, we are going to find ourselves engaged in conflict, in wars with other people, and our actions and our words are going to reflect that. Right? And you might be like, Luke, like, wage wars? That's a little strong. Well, it's what, it's what James says here, right? You look at these first couple passages, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. You quarrel and fight, right? Well, most people don't think that, like, James is actually thinking that they're killing each other in church. Um, like, they're not having, like, knife fights in the middle of church. Um, otherwise, he probably would have spent a significant more time in the chap- chapter talking about murder. Um, so he's probably, he's probably doing hyperbole here, right? But, but, but the point is made... Right, Because when I think about war, I think about taking sides. I think about espionage. I think about cold wars. I think about peace treaties being um, brokered and, in, and, and broken. I think, about, um, I think about people taking sides. I think about collateral damage. All of those things, 100%, can be applied to conflicts. Right? Now, I'm not talking about, all right, when I say conflicts, I'm not talking about like, misunderstandings, right? Not talking about, because when you say conflicts, there's all these things, right? There's like, oh, this was just miscommunication, misunderstanding. Maybe this is even just a healthy working through of things. And, and, and those things, we're kind of kind of set over there, and we'll, we'll save for another topic or conversation. But what I'm talking about here, and what James seems to be talking about, is conflict in which we clench our fists, grind our teeth, dig in our heels, and we decide that we want to actually come at the other person across from us in whatever way that looks like, right? So this is kind of this animosity. This is kind of like your next level kind of conflict. And so, but why, right? Like, why do conflicts happen? Just like historians love the right massive books that not very many people read as to why, like, why did this, like, one, why did this battle happen or why did this conflict happen, right? And people will debate, like, why did World War II happen? Why did World War I happen? You've got all these, like, reasons. Well, no, it was really this, right? But what does James say? What, what does James indicate is the actual source of all of the conflicts? Notice that James doesn't say anything about a specific conflict. Well, it's not because so-and-so is doing this or because you guys always seem to misunderstand this. He doesn't name a single specific. He says that the reason for the conflicts actually aren't in the specifics, aren't in the details, aren't in the things you're actually arguing over. They're, they're in your heart. Right? They're in the rooted inside of you. And so there's this, he says, he calls it, says, they, don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Right? You desire but do not have, so you kill, you covet, cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Right? It's this desire, it's this envy, it's this, 
It's wanting something and deciding that I'm going to do whatever I can to get that thing. When anger and conflict arises, we need to stop and examine the deeper roots of our responses. I think um, I'm making kind of a, because James here is talking very specific. Right? He's kind of talking about these conflicts. You kind of get the sense from the context that he's talking about conflicts where uh, maybe somebody's fighting over a piece of land or fighting over, like, I want to be in this position, have this honor, and I don't want this person to have it. Right? So he's kind of, there's this kind of like wanting to possession, kind of materialism kind of thing that is going on throughout the church. Pardon me. And James is addressing that. And so, um, but I want to make just a little bit of a broader application, take what the principle seems to be and kind of draw that out a little bit. And I think it's that when conflict and anger arises, that there are things behind that conflict and that anger that are often at the root. I've found in my own life that it's, it's not about the thing, whatever the thing is. It's not about... Um, the, the, the time on the clock, it's not about the forgotten thing, it's not about the dishes, it's not about socks on the floor, it's about something else, because it, it's, it's in our heart. There's a desire, there's something going on there. I was reading, um, I was reading Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown, it's one of her newer books, and it's about like the study of emotions and the science behind it. And yes, that is 100% a book I would read on my free time. Um, and, and I was reading this book, and I came to the chapter, and I was looking at the chapter on anger, right? And she makes this argument. Her argument and her opinion is that anger is not a primary emotion. It's an emotion that comes out of other emotions. That behind anger, you will find things like fear, shame, insecurity, guilt, anxiety, hurt, or rejection, Right? Often between my anger, when I want to clench my fists and grind my teeth, there's something that is a little bit harder to the name. Because it's easier to say, I'm angry, than it is to say, I'm actually really afraid right now. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm rather hurt. Actually, like, this is bringing up memories of past rejection. Actually, I feel a lot of shame, right? There's, there's, there's more behind our initial responses than perhaps we would think. I think a lot of times, uh, this is, again, this is me improvising. When, you, when you're having a conflict and, it's, and, 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 and it seems to be about one thing, it's probably not about that one thing. It's probably about something that is tied to it underneath. And that, that, that's true in our hearts, right? And, and we need to examine behind that. At Conduit, we have, um, we have a group that meets called Celebrate Recovery. If you've never heard of Celebrate Recovery, it's a 12-steps-based program uh, for anyone who has a hurt, hang-up, or have it, right? That's the point of it, is we are there um, to help people grow up out of those things and enter into recovery. And, and it's based on the 12 steps. It's, it's similar to programs like AA and things like that, um, but it's also biblically-based. And so the fourth step in Celebrate Recovery, and it's also the fourth step in AA, 
right, is to make a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. It's to look inwards and let's, all right, let's examine myself. Let's be honest with myself about my flaws and about what's going on in my heart and where my hurts come from. And the way you start doing that process, the very first part of making that inventory, is identifying the thing that you're angry at, right? Who, who am I angry at? What am I angry at? What am I resentful at? What do I have these angry feelings to? And the reason is, is because of all of those things that are really behind anger. And as you do the process, you move from identifying the resentfulness you might have towards that person, place, or thing, and you move towards, this is how it's affected me. This is what's actually behind my visible anger. And so there is this, so this exhortation, this encouragement I have for you is that when anger and conflict arises, stop and examine the deeper roots, right? Find out what's going on behind the response. And if you often, if you share that, if you're able to identify that, it's really hard work. I'm not going to say it's easy. Like, it's not flipping a switch, right? It, it is hard, hard work doing this kind of thing. Being able to stop myself, being able to, like, be actually honest with myself and identify the deeper things behind my responses takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of practice. I'm not very practiced at it, honestly. And... And so it's hard work, but if you can do that, and then you can re-engage in conflict with somebody, and you're able to be honest, all right, the reason I'm so mad about the sock being on the floor is because I feel like that means that you don't care about me, right? Because it's not a, it's a sock, and the sock doesn't matter, right? But like, the, but like how I think you feel about me matters, right? So can we get behind that layer? And you'll be surprised at what that does to your conflict. Right, um, I'm not married, and and but so and, and and I'm sure I've heard this somewhere. But I am fond of saying is that um, couples typically have about mm, like three or four arguments that they have. Just that's about it. Like, and they really just kind of take shape in different formats, right? Like, like it, it'll you know you have one one argument, and then it just dresses up and puts on different clothes next month. Right? And, and, and that's for most couples. And why do they have, why is it our tendency to have reoccurring conflicts that are really actually at their core the same thing? Well, it's because we're never actually dealing with them. We're never actually getting down to the roots and digging out the weeds. And so, well, yeah, the conflict's going to keep coming back up because we're not actually dealing with the roots. And so you would be surprised at the amount of resolution and healing that can begin to happen if you start to deal with that. But the other thing, too, is, though, right, is even if you do that, I cannot promise you that the other person will respond appropriately. Because there's always two people in conflict, right? And you might do your absolute best. You might be, you know, like, doing your hardest. But, like, if the other person's just going to, like, not, you know, you might not get what you want. Or, or uh, I've, I've experienced this myself. I've gotten an apology, and I'm like, oh, I feel a lot better. I got an apology. Well, give me a day or two, and, like, I'm angry again, right? Like, why am I angry again, right? Like, they apologize. They've done everything that they could to apologize. And so, why am I angry? Why is this still not going away? Well, I would say is that we cannot, if we're looking for other people 
If we're looking at the person across from us to fix our shame, to fix our fear, to fix our insecurity, to fix my guilt, to fix my anxiety, hurt, or rejection, you are only ever going to be fixing it with duct tape at best. Right? It is a leaky pot, and it's not going to hold water. Right? Until you begin to do some of the heart work, when you turn to God to deal with the deeper roots of your heart's desires. Yes, look behind the response of the situation that you're in. Identify it. Share it with the other person. But you also got to bring it to God. Because God's the one who's got to do that deeper heart healing. He's the one who's got to bring security and healing to our broken selves. That is the hard work. That, that's life's work, to be honest. Um, the Christian life, right, is, is spending our lives letting Christ shape and form us from who we were into who we're going to be. And that takes a lifetime. It's going to be messy, too. Right? Because we've had, we've had so much things, so many things behind us. Everything from just the way that we're wired to the way that we were raised to the current environment we're surrounded by that's impacting and shaping and trying to make us be molded into a certain way. And, and, and the hard work of the Christian life is saying, that's not the mold I fit into anymore. I fit rather into the mold of Christ, right? Let's think of Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the image of this world, but have your minds transformed, right? By the renewing of your minds. And so that is the Christian life, is dealing with these deeper roots, beginning to understand ourselves. And and as we do that, we understand God so much clearer, so much bigger, and our love for him will grow. So, if we've been talking about the heart, right? James continues to move on to that, and here's here's the uh, here's the part of the passage where James really kind of just lets the church have it. So, starting in verse three, James says, "When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend on what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God?" Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy with God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Right? Uh, Throughout the book of James, James calls his readers, calls us, he says, brothers and sisters. And then all of a sudden, he changes his tune very, he makes, he says, you adulterous people. He uses very harsh language. And all of a sudden he's saying, look, where's that integrity? Right? You say that you live in the house of God, but you spend your nights running around and chasing whatever your heart desires. Whatever the world seems to be offering that is fresh, new, and fancy. And so he's saying, Come back. You're, you're adulterous. You, you want to serve your own self. He's saying, when you, when we are out there and we're chasing and we're trying to serve not God, we're serving our pride, we're serving our selfishness, 
We're serving our self-righteousness, our envy, our desire for control over situations or people, a desire for material things, materialism. Maybe we just want to continue to serve and build into and feed this bitterness that's inside of us. Maybe our self-centeredness, maybe even a victim mindset. When we're pursuing these things, when this is what I'm chasing, when these are the desires that rule my heart, then I'm not serving God I'm serving rather myself. When you serve your desires, you make yourself God. And when you serve God, your desires are transformed. That's, that, that is the point here, is that James is saying, look, you cannot serve two gods. You double-minded people, you cannot be in this constant state of saying, I'm a Christ follower but then with my life out doing things that don't match up, the question becomes is, 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 is what does your life say that you actually worship? Uh, I was thinking about this in, in, in a passage came to mind, Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, says that, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Those are the two, I mean, those are the two sins of just about everyone, right? Is that we have forsaken God who offers true, fresh, and clean and living water that will satisfy and we will not grow thirsty. And we've decided, no, I'll get my own water and I'm going to dig a well that just can't hold anything. That's constantly going to be leaking. Because if I'm pursuing my own desires, if I'm pursuing what my heart wants, it's never going to be satisfied. I'm always going to be looking for the next thing. Uh, a point of mine, uh, or not a point of mine, the point of the Bible, right, um, is in, uh, I think it's in Ecclesiastes, it says that God has placed uh, the in eternity into the heart of man. Right? When you think about it, we are limited beings in every way. We have to go to sleep. We have to eat. We will stop living at some point. Right? We are limited, except for one thing, our desires. We always want more. I always want more Ben and Jerry's. Right? Like We always want more. That is the one thing that is true. Our desires are meant to desire not something that is limited like us, but something that is infinite like God. And so when we're chasing something that is limited, we're chasing something that cannot fill the void inside of us, we are always going to be thirsty. We are always going to be disappointed. And so James here is calling out us. And he's saying, stop. Stop for a moment. Consider, what, what does your life say you worship? What does your calendar say that you worship? What does your pocketbook say that you worship? What does your phone activity say that you worship? What do your words say that you worship? What are you truly chasing after? Is it you're chasing after Christ and his kingdom? Or are we chasing after my own desires, my own self, in order to prop myself up? Well, that's some pretty, pretty straightforward stuff, right? As a, as a, as someone who preaches, I'm often trying to think: How can I take 
this truth, what the Bible says, and how can I say it in such a way as to make it as accessible and easy as possible for you to take and to swallow? Because it's a big pill. But sometimes I just have to say that's what it says. And so, but the good news is, is that I don't have to supply any sugar to this pill for this medicine. Because James does. In abundance. Right? What does James say? It says that humility will lead to exaltion. Right? What does the rest of the passage say? It says, but he gives us more grace. More grace. That is why scripture said, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and then he will lift you up. How amazing is it that God coming near to you is not a matter of you crossing or traversing some massive distance, right? I think about, I I, I was thinking about the prodigal son, right? He comes to return. He doesn't make it to the house, right? He's still a long way off. The father sees him, and then the father closes the gap. All you got to do is draw near, and then God draws near to you, right? All you got to do is take a step or two, and God's like, I was waiting, right? I'm coming, right? The battle with the enemy, all you got to do is resist. It doesn't say you got to win. It says you resist and he runs, Right? That, that is the God that we serve. We don't serve a God who sits angrily and desires to punish us. We seek, seek a God that wishes for us to turn to him and just take a step. And he'll come the rest of the way and embrace us. I think that is grace abundant. Um, there was a theologian who I can't remember said that God, uh, God provides what he demands. If God's calling you to come near to him, he's calling you to repentance, he's going to provide everything you need in order to do that. And he's going to be there 100% of the way. And now when we think about, what is this, when we look at this passage, we think about what is humility? And I think we have an image in our mind of repentance and humility, right? They're, they they are connected, but they're they're not entirely the same thing. Um, is that we have this sense of humility? Is this like false? Like, oh, woe is me! I'm a terrible, awful, miserable person that nobody will ever like like, right? Like we can we can come up with like this kind of um, uh, this kind of sense of like beating ourselves down, right? Um, I had if you if you say this phrase. Know that I love you. Um, but I had a guy who, like, I would work with, and I would always say, say hey, you know, he'd, well, he'd come up to me. This was the worst when he'd do this. He'd come up to me and say, Luke, how you doing? I was like, oh, you know, today's doing pretty good. Or, you know, oh, it's a little rough. It was a little, little extra work or a little project that's not going right. I was like, how are you? Oh, better than I deserve. 
Well, yeah, um, but like, how are you doing? <laughs> like, like, yeah, sure, we're all doing better than we actually deserve, I suppose. But like, I just wanted to know how you were doing today. I didn't want to like, you know, um, but he had this just kind of, and the reason it made me so mad um, is because one, I felt like a worldly jerk. Um, and then like, also, it's because like, it was this, I was like, is that actually like, like, is, is that true humility or is it a humility face? And I don't know, that's for God to judge. But what is actual humility? True humility is the rightful recognition of God's ongoing goodness and grace in your life. Right? It's not, it has significantly less to do with recognizing how miserable of a person you are and has so much more to do with recognizing how great God is. Because when we have a better understanding of who God is, how good he is, how great he is, and the grace and goodness that he imparts into our lives every single day, you will begin to understand yourself more rightly with your flaws and your strengths, right? Not as just some sort of worm, but you'll begin to see, like, I am stepping closer to Christ. I have this much farther to go, though, and God still loves me where I'm at. True humility is the recognition of God's ongoing goodness and grace in your life. And so that is what it... It's what it looks like to do this heart inventory, to truly ask myself, am I being led by God? Am I serving his will? Am I serving his intention, his kingdom? Or am I serving my will, my intentions, my kingdom that I want to build rather than his? And in response to that, is a simple saying, I want to humble myself. I want to know God as greater and better and gooder. Gooder. Better. <laughs> Gotta call that one out. Um, but I want to know God as who he truly is, as close as I can, right? Because beyond imagination is, is the breadth, width, and depth of his love for us. Beyond comprehension. And I want to get as close to that edge of comprehension as possible. And in doing so, I want to have him change my heart. So how does James wrap all this up? How does this, again, tie back into how we treat one another? Again, James uses the words in verse uh, 11. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, you, who are you to judge? All right. I gotta gotta be honest. This is part of the passage where I'm like, oh man. I struggle, right? I, I, I like to read um, I like to read counseling books, I like to read psychology, I like self-help podcasts, I like to figure things out. I like to understand how I work, and I like to help understand how other people work. And so it is tempting, and I definitely fail at it. I will psychoanalyze people. Please don't be awkward. If, I don't I swear I'm not psychoanalyzing everyone. Um, but like I, I will have a tendency. Um, to, to decide, you know what, like, I think I know what's going on in their head. Like, I think I know why they're acting that way. And if they just did this, like, it'd be all better. 
right? Well, by golly, aren't I acting as a judge? Right? How often do we have the prescription for the ale of everyone else except ourselves? Now, James here is talking about, he's, he's talking about believers judging one another in the harshest possible way, saying that, like, so-and-so is deserving of the judgment of God. It's pretty severe. Hopefully that's not the, the, the norm, uh, but that does still happen. But I think that, again, this can even broaden out. I think that we so often forget that the person that who is sitting across from us, the person who just cut us off in traffic, the person who really annoys us, is a human being with the same flaws and failings as us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He says, Nothing we despise in other men is inherently absent from ourselves. We must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or what they don't do and more in light of what they suffer. And leave it to Bonhoeffer to say it deeper than I could, right? It's, it's, it's this deeper thing going on. There's, there's nothing, there is nothing that I could find in anyone else that is completely absent in myself. You know what I find to be true? Is that the people, uh, this will happen occasionally. I will find somebody and I just... Man, why do they bug me so much? Why do I just kind of get irrationally kind of angry at them? Chances are, is because there's, and I might say, oh, they're just, actually this, I remember this happening with an individual I attended college with. And I, and I just was like, oh, he bugs me. He's just so prideful. He's so arrogant. He's a jerk. Like, he just thinks he knows everything. And he's just, he thinks he's going to be like this great pastor, right? And he's just so arrogant. He doesn't even know how, how much he doesn't know. Oh, okay, it's that obvious, right? Like, like it's that obvious. Is the fact is, is that that was actually a descriptor of me. I just didn't want to own up to it. The reason I was so angry at him is it was, it was much more of an indicator of the state of my own heart than it was of anything he ever said or did. It was a much more of an indicator of the fact that, like, actually, I've got pride and I've got a chip on my shoulder that I need to deal with, right? And when I realized that, when I realized that, like, oh, all of the nasty things I am saying about this guy like, are probably more true of myself. Like That's a giant insert, insert foot moment. And, and, and that I found to be true for myself, and I would wager is true across human experience. And so if you find yourself sitting across from someone else, and you're just like, how can you be so fill-in-the-blank? Ah, <laughs> uh, maybe you should ask yourself that question. Right? Because if we begin to see the other person not as an obstacle to what I want to achieve or to get or to get from them or protect myself from, but as I see them as an other, as somebody else to be loved, somebody else to be understood, somebody else who's probably feeling a lot more similar to how I'm feeling right now than different, be amazed at how that changes all of our conversations. I'm no longer having a conversation with someone just because I have to. Not having a conversation with someone just to get it done. Not having a conversation with someone just because I want something from them. Having a conversation with somebody with a soul, heart, with a desire. Somebody who is created and formed in the image 
of God and who Christ died for. And that changes everything. Changes how I interact with everyone I encounter. So if my main point was that when our hearts don't serve God, we wage wars with our actions and words, what then is the positive, what's the affirmative of that statement? And it's this, that if you submit your heart to God, you will begin to build bridges of peace. If we begin and end and start with submitting rather my heart and myself in humility to God and saying, I want to be more like Christ. I want Christ to shape the way I see and love and speak to the others around me. Rather than building walls, rather than uh, blowing up bridges, I'll find that I'm building bridges of peace. I'm finding that I have more in common with my neighbor than I thought. That the conflict I'm having right now is much smaller, actually, than I even thought. And that there's something, there's an opportunity for us all to know Christ better. When we submit our hearts to God, things change, right? We can try and build our own kingdoms. We can try and serve our own heart's desires. We can try and we can demand, we can beg and scream and try and get what we want from this world and from other people. But even if you get it, I promise you it's just a leaky well. You're going to be thirsty again. Christ rather says, come to me, taste and see that I am good. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I did not come to heal the healthy. I came for the sick. Christ has come for us in our conditions where we are at today. And he wants us to know him, to be shaped by him, and to be loved by him. And when we come and we submit ourselves there first, be amazed at the transformation that will begin to form, not just in how we relate to ourselves, but in how we relate to our family, how we relate to our coworkers, to our community. might even change just the face of of who we are, and it will transform the testimony of our groups, of our church, and of how we live our life here. If you would, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask for that grace that you provide. We ask that you would truly come into our hearts, that you would help us to see you more clearly and love you more dearly. Lord, we, we want to come as people who are willing to be humble before you, as people who are willing to submit ourselves to your kingdom rather than our own. God, I ask that you would help us to build bridges of peace to other people that you would help us to see how we can serve others rather than get things from them. God, I pray for any specific conflicts that have come to people's minds throughout this message. God, I pray that you would help. I, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would reign and control in those conversations. Lord, I pray that you would transform how we see one another and how we serve you. Lord, I just 
I pray for all of us, all of us connected here at Conduit. I ask that you would help us to live a life that is filled with faith and integrity. That as we worship you today, that that would begin to shape in us and form us into people who worship you tomorrow and the next day. That our lives would speak and proclaim of how much you have first loved us, of how good you are and how glorious you are. Lord Jesus Christ, these things that only you can do, we ask that you would do them among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.